In Matthew 19, Jesus says, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. How can sports be a way of reaching children for the sake of the gospel? Another question is, how can you show Jesus to children that may have experienced trauma or some sort of hardship in their lives already, even at 9 or 10 years old? Well, Jimmy Larch and Breakaway Outreach do this all around the world. Jimmy is the founder of Breakaway Outreach, an organization founded to empower young people with gospel transformation and making disciples of Jesus Christ through nurturing communities of faith, love, and hope. What is so unbelievable about Jimmy's story is that one point in his life, he found himself in a juvenile detention center and didn't know what the future held. Flash forward years later, and he helps kids find themselves and find Jesus all over the world through sports. This conversation, it was so great. It was so inspiring, and I am so thankful that Jimmy got to come on today. Um, but for you listening, please make sure to subscribe and share this episode. You have no idea how much it means to us. But now let's get into this awesome discussion today. How are we doing, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the Competing for Christ podcast. I'm your host, Ken Burke, and today we get to talk to Jimmy Larch. Jimmy, I am so honored to have you on today, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Ken. Thank you so much for the invite and um, just happy to be a part of the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be a great conversation. You know, we're talking a lot about, you know, reaching youth today and, and a lot more uh, with that. But I would love to get to know more about you first, and I'm sure the listeners would as well. So what is your background as as a believer and, you know, how have you used sports and you know, specifically your ministry to multiply and connect? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, sports has always been a part of my life from very early childhood. I think, you know, looking back, growing up in Baltimore uh, as an Orioles fan, I used to go to the Orioles games all the time as a kid. And that was really my first uh, childhood passion was to play baseball. And that maybe, maybe the first dream was to be a professional baseball player. Of course, it had to be for the Baltimore Orioles because I was growing up in Baltimore. So uh, yeah, that was the dream at maybe seven, eight, nine years old, uh, just baseball with a passion and uh, went to a lot of games as a kid in the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore and had a lot of memories. And in a lot of ways, uh, uh, the baseball refuge i would call it because that's really what it was for me from from a lot of turbulence and hardship in my childhood as well uh sport would would become a refuge for me from a lot of the really the the hardship that i would be facing in in my childhood which was quite a bit Uh, so i would say my first love was certainly baseball and probably my first heartbreak would be in 1979 with the pittsburgh pirates when they beat the orioles in the series after we were up three games to one. Uh, so that was probably my first real heartbreak as a kid. Um, but uh, I played Little League, uh, you know, growing up a lot. And I, I, I grew up in a single parent home. So it was uh, odd for me in, in a way that most of my teammates on, the, on, on Little League baseball field, you know, had fathers that would work with them, coach with them. Uh, come out to their games, come out to their practices and that kind of thing. And that always, I remember from very early on, that was something that just kind of stuck out to me that was odd in my life, that I I felt different, you know, that I didn't have a father 
figure in my life that really was in my corner um, supporting me with with sport and my ambitions with sports. So um, that's just kind of like in a nutshell, my, my younger years. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I went through a lot of hardship in, in adolescence as well. And it was hard for me to stay consistent with any sport throughout like a full season in my teenage years because I was getting into a lot of trouble and uh, <clears throat> the dysfunction in my home caused me to not be able to keep my grades up. I couldn't focus in school. Uh, even when I was, you know, playing on sports teams, like in high school and such, I, I would start the season uh, and then not be able to finish the season because I would run away from home or have some kind of problem where I would be in and out of different youth institutions and such. And uh, so I always loved sport, but it was always also interrupted by childhood drama. But then also it was that that refuge for me when I did get the opportunity as a youth to be able to participate in sports. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really, you know, that's a lot, I'm sure, of athletes. A lot of athletes out there can relate to that as well, because, you know, sports can definitely be, an, uh, you know, their refuge away from the reality of their life. And, you know, for, you know, just like yourself, really hard times in life, I'm sure. And how were you able to navigate that and not only use sports to, you know, not, I would say, get out of that situation, but, you know, grow from that situation? Yeah, I, I would say... It, it, like in high school, for example, uh, my father came back into my life when I was 13 years old, and uh, he was a very violent and abusive man. And for me, it was like I had to stay out of the home, like any way that I could, whether it was running away for, for weeks at a time or playing sport. And, and for example, in, in high school, I, I would, you know, play uh, football and after practice, I would not want to go to go home, right? It was like, as long as I could stay away from home, I felt like that was the, the only peace that I had in my life or at least refuge from the, the tension that was going on at home. Um, so I think just trying to, to, to be involved with sports as much as I could when I could um, is, is maybe how I did try to navigate that, that troubled adolescence. Um, but I ended up uh, getting locked up at 16 years old uh, in a in a juvie center, and it was there that really my whole life would would take on a whole new trajectory, a whole new course, and where I did have a person that came into my life, and uh, we called him Reverend Woody. Uh, he was a local pastor that came into the juvenile center in Ocala, Florida, and he really became a father figure to me from from that day on until he passed away in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, but just really filled a gap in my life, a void that, that my father, biological father, had left. Uh, he, he filled that. And at 16 years old, um, he became that one person in my corner uh, first who shared the gospel with me. And, you know, I recognized during that encounter that I was a sinner, that, that Christ died for my sins, that God had been pursuing me all these years, even though I didn't see it couldn't recognize it. It was hard for me, even when I first became a Christian at that time, to see God as Father because I had such a distorted figure of what a father was. You know, my father was absent for 12 years, and then 
abusive and, and violent and, and horrible role model uh, when he did come back into my life. So when I became a Christian at 16 years old and this brand new relationship with God, I still had to like, well, I had to have that restored, that image of fatherhood restored because it had been shattered in my childhood. And God used that man, uh, Reverend Woody, to really become that figure in my corner. And that's why I tell people today, you know, just having one person in your corner can make all the difference in the world. Uh, just one person. You don't need a whole mob. You don't need an army, you know. But if you have one person who really believes in you, supports you, and uh, understands that there's potential in you and something worth bringing out, um, that can make all the difference in the world for you. And it did for me, just that one person. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And you know, as you were in in juvie, when when Reverend Woody came, how did he, you know, go about trying to build that relationship with you? Because he, I'm sure he knew, you know, the situation that you had come from. How was he able to, you know, weave the gospel into y'all's conversations? Well, the first thing he did was he showed a film. Uh, the very first night that I met him, he he shared a film. And it was a gospel film taken from a Bible story in Luke chapter 15. And it was the story of the prodigal son, the lost son. And here was this uh, young boy, young man who took his father's inheritance and ran off and spent it on all this crazy, sinful, you know, riotous and, and uh, just immoral living. And he finally comes to himself one day and he says, hey, you know, I'm... My father's been pretty good. You know, he's got an estate. He can take care of me. But here I am. I'm trying to eat pig's food because I've wasted everything. And I'm here with the pig slop. Why don't I go back to my father? And uh, I'm no longer good enough to be a son, but I'll come back as a servant. And because my father's well-to-do, uh, he can take me back as a servant and at least I'll have a job, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's kind of paraphrasing yeah. here. But that's kind of like the gist of the story in Luke chapter 15. And I was watching this on a on a screen. It was a 16 millimeter film projector that this guy had used in, in Juvie to, to be able to you know share this film. So I'm just looking at this. And as I watch this story unfold, I'm like, wow, you, you know, I, I knew that there was something that the Holy Spirit was doing in my heart because... I began to see that this was an image of my heavenly father, right? Who, who was pursuing me and reaching out to me in the midst of all my childhood chaos and that I needed to come home to him. And I didn't know exactly what all that meant or what it looked like, but I just knew at 16 years old, there was something missing. As, as some people say, there's that um, God-shaped hole in your heart that can never be filled by anything else, right? I, I had that experience. I just knew that there was something missing. I needed God. And uh, that, that's really where it all began, was he used film and media to present these stories, to share with the young people uh, the gospel. And it, for me, it, it was exactly what I needed, because when I started reading the Bible, I saw that Jesus himself always spoke in what we would call parables, mm. uh, wor using word pictures or stories, you know, to communicate spiritual truth. And that's what that pastor did. He, he shared a lot of films, and then he would, he would share stories and then preach from the Word of God. Um, but it was very relatable. Uh, but I think most importantly, he demonstrated a love that I had not really experienced before in my life. You know, love for all those 
young men who were locked up in that institution, he would go around and, and just show dignity to each and every one of them, you know, put his hand on their shoulder, you know, and ask them about how their, their week was gone, this kind of thing. It was just genuine. It was real. And I think for me, I just recognized something in him that uh, it, it was sincere and it was a love that I had never really seen, you, you know, in, in someone else like that before. And that definitely impacted my life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, nowadays, you know, you are, you are, you're a founder and you, you run a, an outreach now. Why do you feel like, or when did you feel like God was calling you to, you know, start Breakaway Outreach? So when, uh, when I went back to high school, after I got uh, out of being locked up, I uh, finished high school, I graduated and uh, started going to school to become an architecture. That was really my plan that I was going to follow and pursue, uh, you know, but as they say, sometimes God just, just laughs at our plans. And if you really want to make God laugh, just tell them what your plans are. Yep. Um, I think maybe God did have a little smirk with how I had planned out my whole life. Uh, so while I'm going to school pursuing architecture and to be a, a computer designer and all of this, uh, I kept going back into, uh, juvenile centers and schools and going to youth groups and youth rallies and such because I would be invited to share my testimony, just my, my story, you know, and, uh, the more I did that, the more God opened up doors for me to go to other places. So I just kept saying, yes, <laughs> you know, as doors would open, I would get an invite. I just kept saying yes. And then, uh, we're, we're going into different juvenile centers and, uh, I, it, I just knew that there was a spiritual thing going on where God was pulling me. You know, a lot of people describe a calling in different ways. Um, I never heard like an audible voice, but I did hear a spiritual voice in my heart where I, I really sensed that God was calling me into ministry. I didn't know really what that meant, what that would look like, but I know that there was a spiritual pull there. And uh, I had to just continue to be willing to yield to that and take one step at a time towards what that would look like. So as my youth pastor back in the day used to say, you know, it's a whole lot easier to steer a car when it's moving. It's kind of like how God steers us. We take one faith step at a time. As long as we're moving, right, we're, we're taking steps of obedience, little steps one by one, God can steer us and, and navigate us, even course correct us into the things that he has for us even if we're starting to step away, you know, into our own ambition or whatever have you. Um, so I, I was experiencing that. And the more I volunteered in ministry, the more the path started getting bigger and bigger that I had to make decisions. Okay, do I say no to ministry opportunities uh, or, you know, to pursue my career? Uh, or do I slow down and say, okay, God, what are you up to? How can I begin to prepare for maybe a new new career that you might be calling me into. So I, w I would say that really, for me, it, it was all about volunteering and serving consistently, going back into facilities, just sharing my testimony, going to different churches and youth groups and such. And then as uh, my wife and I started dating in uh, 1995, we met and we started doing a Bible study in a local juvenile center in South Florida. And we had four teenagers, teenage boys that were part of that the first week. And then uh, we would come back the next week and we just saw God continue to bring more and more 
teens to the Bible study. And before long, the entire facility, you know, they, they would just shut it down on Saturday nights. They're like, you're going to chapel because that's what everybody wanted to do. So God was definitely moving and up to something. And I would say, you know, from there, that's really where Breakaway Outreach began is in that one juvenile facility in Hope Sound, Florida, through Bible studies, my wife's uh, cookies that she would bake, <laughs> and, and, and just going and sharing my story of how, you know, Christ had changed my life, sharing God's Word, and then sports ministry kicked in not, not long after that. Because we started doing a basketball program there, and bringing in different youth workers, uh, athletes to come play basketball with the kids, you know, in this facility. They loved it. Uh, the, the young people loved it. They got to play basketball. They got to hear stories from athletes sharing their faith. And the staff, you know, the administration of this facility loved it because they saw the impact of it. Uh, so, so word got around pretty quick to other facilities in South Florida and we started getting invitations, you know, of other juvenile centers asking us to come and do sports ministry because they recognized that we were doing something that was really connecting with the young people. Uh, we weren't just coming in and, you know, just preaching to them, you know, or beating them up with a Bible or whatnot, because that was happening in some in some places and uh, and facilities that would get kind of you know, gun shy. No, we're not going to allow that anymore because people have abused it. They saw we were doing something with sports ministry and they said, this is good for the kids. Let's have more of this. So that's really the beginning of Breakaway Outreach and how it really began to uh, continue to expand to other facilities beyond just that one juvenile center in Hope Sound, Florida. Wow. That is, that's an amazing story. And yeah, I mean, if you would have told your 16-year-old self that, you know, you as a, a person in juvie would be doing this outreach, I'm sure you would have been like, no, I, that's crazy. And, you know, I, I think I relate to that so much because as a as an athlete, I was I did not follow Christ how how we should or called to do from the majority of how I, you know, was an athlete. And now doing this podcast, it's just, if you would have told me that five years ago, I'd be like, no, dude, you're crazy. But yeah, it's just, it's so crazy how when you just say yes, or you say, or you just show up to whether volunteer or a job or to work out, God is going to use that if you, you know, dedicate that work to him. I think that's so important. I think you've done a really great job with that. And how have you seen Breakaway just grow over the, 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 the years of that you've been doing it? Yeah, so I'm going to fast forward now because we're not going to have time to like go into all the, the, the bridges, right? From, <laughs> yeah. Like from one place to the yeah. next place to the next. Um, but now today, Breakaway Outreach has served in 12 countries, four different continents uh, through sports ministry and uh, youth camps and such. And I look at how far God has brought us on this journey and those with us that, um, that we've been able to partner with along the way. And people will often ask me, you know, how did you end up doing a multi-sport camp in Italy? Or how did you end up working with a church plant in Germany with a baseball camp, you know, to plant a church? Or how did you end up uh, doing this ministry that serves refugees or orphans through sports? Uh, and, and the answer is always this. I, I think sometimes people are looking for something maybe a little bit more black and white, but the answer is really, we, we just keep saying yes to Jesus. We just keep saying yes. So as we go 
along our journey of faith and life, uh, when God gives us opportunities to serve, we say yes to that opportunity. And uh, when we do that, what we need to realize is that that step of obedience is also steering us towards a next step of obedience. So I can remember going on mission trips, you know, in the early years and using sport. But around 2010, uh, God was really stirring my heart, in particular through a relationship I had with a pastor uh, about doing uh, a sports camp in Germany. And we came alongside of a, a, a small church that really was a, uh, a Russian migrant church. It had been for many years. So it was a subculture. It was just a little uh, church community of several Russian families that had migrated to Germany, but, but this was their church family. And we began exploring how uh, a baseball camp could help them with their outreach. So that was the, the very first partnership we had was how we could, from Tennessee, bring a team to, to coach baseball and help this church with their outreach efforts. And over three years of serving there alongside of that community, we saw their church grow. It, it expanded beyond just a Russian sub-community, subculture to, to now really a diverse uh, presence in their community. We saw young people come into Christ. We saw translators coming to Jesus, wow. <laughs> uh, like college students that would show up and say, uh, yeah, I, w- I want to translate. Maybe I served a year in the U.S. as an exchange student, so I learned some English. Now Americans are coming to Germany, and they're doing this baseball thing. Oh, yeah, let me practice my English, right? Um, and we would see like uh, where where someone through translating during our team times would be translating the gospel. And through that, they're receiving the gospel and, and, and recognizing their need for the gospel and coming to Christ. You know, stories like that. And then when we had the, uh, the refugee influx in Germany, you know, that was also became an extension. The outreach of the, the, the sports ministry there became uh, an extension to serving refugees coming into the country with other camps. Yeah, and then we would get invited to other places in Germany. Uh, we we helped to plant a church in Germany that used the baseball camp for three years before they launched their first public worship service. But they used a baseball camp as outreach in their community and then uh, built their core group and planted the church uh, really through the baseball camp ministry. And today that church is really thriving and doing some incredible things for the kingdom. Um and all of this, you know, was before COVID, and COVID never even slowed them down. Wow. So it's just really awesome to see how God has done that. And then from there, we just continued to, to multiply as we would get invitations to come to Italy and do sports camps. Um, now we have a, a regional director in the UK who's launching camps all across the UK, and, and that's a, a new arm of the ministry now. Uh, I'm going to Ghana, West Africa, next month, so we've been helping to develop coaches there. Uh, with a, a, a gospel-centered baseball outreach in the Kamasi area. So that started before COVID and got interrupted a little bit, and now we're picking that back up uh, post-COVID. So that's exciting to see now on the other side of COVID that a lot of the operations are back to, to full speed and such internationally. 
Yeah. Yeah. Before we go any further, I really would love if you shared uh, the story about your logo, Breakaway's logo, because I read the story of the starfish and it was impactful for me. And I would love if you just told that. Yeah, the starfish, it's got a really a multiplicity of meanings because it, it, it impacts me personally because I was that one. And that's really the motto is it matters to this one. And it is the story that many people are probably familiar with or some some may be familiar with of the fellow walking along the seashore and seeing all these starfish that have been washed ashore and they're they're dying you know, of dehydration and begins to pick them up and, and just throw them back in the water trying to save them. And he continues to do this. And then someone comes up to him and says, you know, do you really think you can make a difference? Uh, this seashore goes on for miles and miles and miles. You can't make that much of a difference. And he, he thought about it for a moment. And then he looked at the one that was in his hand and he said, it matters to this one. And he threw that one in the water. And that's really uh, the imagery that our, our ministry was birthed on was that it matters to just that one. You know, when you think about Luke 15, uh, that whole chapter there is not just about the prodigal son, but it's about the one sheep or the one coin, right? And Jesus said he would leave the 99 and go after the one that was lost. Uh, so it's that principle of, you know, doing for one what you, what you wish you could do for all, what you wish you could do for everybody, what you would like everyone on this planet to experience are you willing to do that just for the one that is in front of you or the one that is marginalized or your neighbor, you know, or your classmate or maybe even that person on your team who uh, isn't being encouraged by your other teammates, but you want to look out for them. And ultimately, it's about the good news of who Jesus is, right? That every single person on this planet, Jesus loves them and died for them as if they were just that one. And when one, it, the Bible even tells us when one person comes to repentance and uh, comes into that relationship with Jesus, the Bible goes as far as to say that there's this celebration in heaven. It's like this party that's going on because of one. And that's the logo. That's the starfish meaning is that it, it truly matters to just that one. And we try to carry that with us everywhere we go. Yeah. That's such a... Uh it draws people's eyes so much because, you know, it gives them a way of, or gives you a way of just sharing more about that, that story and what your mission is as a organization. Uh, but, you know, shifting back to, you know, focusing on children and focusing on outreach through uh, your organization, you know, in Matthew 18, it ta Jesus talks a lot about having faith like a child and having really changing our mindsets to those of children. Um, as you work with, you know, tons of children every year, how have you seen this not only play out in your life, but play out in the children that you work with and children that you, you know, witness to? Yeah, so many different ways, right? Uh, I think the one thing that really stands out for me when it comes to, say, a one thing is we, we really preach this and push this with every young person that we serve, whether it's you know, locally in our camps for at-risk and underserved kids, which we do here in Tennessee. Uh, we have children that come to our camps that most of them have uh, some kind of hardship going on. Uh, for example, many would, would have a parent in prison. Uh, some have had both parents in prison. And every year we do this, this camp and uh, reach out to them and give them hope. But 
the one thing that we always push is that God doesn't waste our pain. Uh, as a matter of fact, we even say it this way, God will never waste your pain. So when we think of little children uh, coming to Jesus and, and having that, that childlike faith, right? Because of the stacked trauma that kids today are facing, like back in the day, when I say back in the day, maybe 10, 20, whatever, my back in the day is probably going to be longer than your back in the day, right? Ken, just a little bit. But, but back in the day, whenever that was, right, uh, kids might only have like one layer of trauma that they would be faced with. And it would really be a challenge in their lives to overcome that, right? Today, we're dealing with what uh, child psychologists are calling stacked trauma. Like it's it, anymore, it's never one thing. It's like there's stacked layers of trauma. And these kids are faced with things that I, I could have never imagined being, you know, growing up and, and facing that myself and overcoming that. But we tell them, you know, no matter what you, you go through, or what you're facing, God doesn't waste it. Like every one of those stacked layers of hardship and trauma, there is something redemptive in each and every one of those. Let me give you an example. Um, Ten years ago, we had a young man um, at the time who, I'd say at the time he was a kid, about nine years old. And when he, when he first came to our camp, both of his parents were in prison. Uh, he had watched them get arrested and everything right in his home, you know, and literally just taken from him. And his grandmother signed him up to come to our camp. And when he came to our camp, he didn't want to be there. So he, he described himself as an isolationist. I didn't want anything to do with that. But grandma signed him up. So he came, uh, really just kind of isolated himself that first year. But then we stayed in touch with him, invited him to some other things, a kid ventures program that we also do. And then uh, he came back to camp the next year and began to open up. Eventually he opens up to, to Jesus says yes to the gospel, uh, surrenders his life, and continues to grow and grow and come back every year to camp. And he's still coming to camp now. You know, all these years later, he's a, a college, University of Tennessee student going into his junior year. I mean, he's one of our best staff person, right? And we look at him, his name's Kobe, and uh, Kobe comes to camp this year and he says before the whole camp, I've never said this to anybody yet, but I want you guys to know this. One day I'm going to be running this camp. So I, I'm like, how about next year, Kobe? <laughs> let's, <laughs> let, let's get that transition process going, right? Um, yeah. except, exceptional leader. Exceptional leader. But I can tell you a lot of things about Kobe's life over the last 10 years, but, but here's the most important thing. Kobe has recognized that God doesn't waste his pain that there is something redemptive in what we go through and you don't have to be a victim, right? You don't have to go through life being a victim your whole life. It's like, yes, we, maybe we were victimized in, in some cases or maybe our childhood was robbed from us like I felt for so many years. You know, I had victim, been victimized in my childhood. But that doesn't have to like hijack your whole life and your future. There's something else that God wants to hijack your life and your future. And that's taking where you have been, say, victimized and turning that into something that is triumphant and victorious for others. And that's what Kobe has seen. 
I would say that's the difference maker with Kobe is over the years, he's had restored dignity in his life. He's had mentorship that has invested in him and shown him that there's a better path than just being a victim, you know, of that childhood trauma, that God wants to use that pain, turn it into something that is redemptive, that you can invest into other young people that also have different, different layers of trauma that they're experiencing themselves. And that's the difference maker is God turns our pain into something that has a purpose to it. Uh, if we're willing to, you know, to, to look for that and search that out. Mm, that's, that's so good. And yeah, I mean, when those, when those children go through that trauma, I, I'm sure like, I know that they have to grow up so fast because for that example you just shared, that young man watched his parents get arrested right in front of him. And that, like, that shouldn't happen to a 10 year old, to a nine year old. It, it really forces you to, you know, grow up right you know in that instance because you're kind of fending for yourself when you're both of your parents are you know incarcerated but when when you do get those new children that really don't want to be a part of your program what do you what do you what steps do you take how do you use sports and you know anything else to try to get them involved yeah and pretty much all the the camps and ministries that we do have some kind of sport in, in the DNA and in the, in the structure of it, because sports, um, I look at sports and I see that it, it is a universal language. And it's not just a universal language like where people of different countries and different nations can come together, drop a ball in the middle of the field and just play together. Right. I mean, it truly is in that regard, a universal language. And that's why we can use it anywhere on the planet. Um, but it's also a universal language in the heart. Like there, there are components and aspects of, of sport, the team concept. Like, for example, we live in, in a society today where everything is pushing individualism, right? Mm. And yet when we become a part of team sports, we see that, oh, wait a minute, I have a responsibility to the team. Not only do I have a responsibility to the team, but I have a contribution to the team right? I can let the team down. I can be an asset to the team. Uh, there's all these different aspects that come with that team identity. And that's what we really have in the DNA of all of our camps is even when a child comes to our camp and is struggling with, oh, my, mom made me come or grandma made me come because she thought this would be good for me and it's going to build resilience in my life, but I don't even care about that right now, you know? <laughs> uh, eventually the team concept begins to rub off on people because the the community and the camaraderie is something that God has wired in all of us. And even though as much as our society pushes, pushes individualism, and as much as there's a part of us that thinks that that's the easier path to go down, right? I just don't need anybody that everybody just lets me down. I'm just going to go solo because it's the easiest thing to do and I can protect myself. I can insulate myself. I can take care of me. That's our society. That's our culture. But when we begin to be a part of a team and, and you can see this start to change almost overnight when people experience the team concept, oh, I was made for this. I was made for community. I was made to share, you know, the one anothering that the, the Bible talks about all these different one another commands, over 60 of them in the New Testament. Um, my faith 
is not just about me. My faith is about a team that God wants me to be a part of. And how can I experience that with others? I think just the team DNA itself is something that we always push. And uh, that leads to a communal mentality that becomes contagious. And then ultimately, that can become a picture of God's family, right? And then a young person can see that, oh, I was made. Even if my family was shattered and my family was dysfunctional and I came from a family that was just madness uh, and so much drama, I can go back to understanding or at least understand maybe even for the first time, get the revelation that God's idea of family is something that can be restored in my life. Mm. Yeah. And you learn so many different things in sports that can be applied to life. And I'm sure it helps those kids that you get involved with so much, you know, learning leadership, teamwork, courage, bravery. They're learning all of these things through, through your program, which is really beneficial for their lives. As we do start to wrap up today, Jimmy, I, I really do appreciate you coming on today. And I really want to, I wanted to ask you this question because this has been so fascinating for myself. What is the biggest lesson that you've learned throughout your ministry and throughout, the, throughout this outreach? Uh, biggest lesson. Uh, there's a lot of them, but if I can just maybe pull one, uh, I would say, you know, now for almost 30 years of ministry, I've seen a lot change. Uh, especially just in the last 10 years, our world is just changing at such a rapid pace, right? Maybe to borrow the line of that great theologian, Brad Pitt, (laughs) (laughs) in uh, Moneyball, which is one of my favorite sports movies, uh, adapt or die, right? And as, as we look at the world changing around us in so many ways, I think, you know, there, there's two ways that you can respond as a Christian, uh, whether it's an athlete that wants to represent Christ on the field and you want to share your faith and um, be a witness for Christ to those around you, whether it's someone going into ministry and wanting to impact other people's lives or, uh, or, or just serving in some kind of uh, capacity where you want to make a difference, the adapt or die, I think there's some truth in that in the sense that, you know, we can either become fatalistic in our thinking. Oh no, everything is getting so bad and there's no hope. Mm-hmm. Or we can recognize that times are a changing, <laughs> but, but we can change too, right? It's like the gospel is timeless. Sin never ceases to, to break lives, right? Sin never ceases to destroy lives. But Jesus has never changed, and the good news has never changed. The gospel has never changed. Uh, but what does change is the methods. And that's what I think, you know, someone said it rightly. We need to cling to the gospel with everything that we have. But on the other hand, we need to hold uh, loosely our methods, our methodology. And I can say that, yeah, pushing 30 years of ministry that I can look back and see where methods have certainly changed. You know, I'm not going into juvenile detention centers setting up 16 millimeter film projectors anymore, (laughs) even though that was a method, a vehicle that someone used to reach me with the gospel. Um, I don't even think we're using DVDs anymore, right? (laughs) Uh, The methods are changing so rapidly, 
but that's okay. We can adapt. We have to adapt. Like we have to keep the gospel in front of us and we have to see the, the methods that we use today as something that we might not employ them tomorrow, you know, but if our, if our hope and our anchor of, of faith is truly to live for Christ and to share the good news of Jesus with the world at large, um, then we have to be willing to be flexible, right? And, and, and I think I'd just like to maybe wrap it up with this, Ken. You know, something that really convicted me recently. I was in Korea earlier in the year, and we were doing some sports ministry uh, in South Korea. And what one thing I learned was once I got there, I was there for a month. By the time I was leaving, I was no longer using the, the word South Korea. I didn't define it any longer as South because when you're there, they don't talk like that. It, it's a very Western way of speaking. We define Korea as North and South. North bad, South good. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and that's kind of like what we're fed here in our Western uh, mindset. But being there for a month and being around other believers and in churches, doing sports ministry with people who have a heart to reach all of Koreans with the gospel of Jesus and are praying for those opportunities, it really convicted me uh, because I had a missionary come up to me and he said this, he said, are you interested in bringing sport ministry into the North? And I thought it was a joke and I laughed, <laughs> you know, we were South of Seoul. So I thought, Oh, maybe on my way back out, you know, in Seoul, yeah. you have, you know, something you want to do there. <laughs> and it took me, you know, a few minutes cause I was kind of slow. Um, he was dead serious. When the doors open in the north, Jimmy, do you want to, are you interested, right, in bringing the sport ministry into the north? Because he saw how effective it was where we were at in the south. What are you going to say to that? Oh, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. No, I've gotten to this point in my life simply by by one thing and it's constantly saying yes jesus mm. yes jesus where do you want me to go who do you want me to serve what is that going to look like yes um and this is what he told me he said ever since dennis rodman went to north korea they have been building basketball courts all over the place and it really convicted me and i and i went back to my room that night and i prayed and i was like god well you know I'm sorry. I had to repent of such small thinking that the South is possible to breach, but the North, that's closed off. I mean, I can remember several years ago where it seemed impossible to go to Cuba, right? Yeah. And now I, I have friends that are going to Cuba doing sports ministry all the time, taking teams there. And I was just really convicted. I came home from Korea and I thought, God, yeah, may, you might even be calling me one day to take sports ministry into the north. Am I going to be willing and ready to do that if you do, right? So th that's just the challenge I was left with, right? Adapt or die. Um, we have to be willing to always say yes to Jesus, no matter what he calls us to. We also have to be willing to change our methods or our approaches, even our paradigms of thinking, of what is possible, what is not possible, as far as where the gospel can go. So who knows? Maybe one day I'll end up in North Korea doing some sports ministry or not. I don't know. But I was convicted that uh, we can put God in a box with our thinking, right? 
and we can minimize in our own minds what he's capable of doing, who he's capable of reaching, and maybe lives that we may write off as incapable of change. But maybe God wants to blow the lid off of that and say, no, I'm still able to change lives that you think may not be reachable. Um, and I just want to, I want to keep on keeping my heart tender to those kinds of, uh, you know, that, that kind of thinking that God can still change lives and he is still changing lives. And uh, don't, don't let the negative things that are happening all around us or in the world cause us to, to lose hope in what God is doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That That is so good. And I was just talking to somebody about that last night, even, you know, who are we to relegate what soul should be saved? What, who, who, what soul we should, you know, witness to, we are nothing compared to what Jesus can do. And I think that's so important. And I, I've, I felt so convicted when I heard that because when Jesus calls, he calls and we have to be willing to say yes. I think that's so important. That's a great point that you made. But but Jimmy, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. What you're doing in the entire world is just so fascinating, so interesting to me. I really can't uh, thank you enough for the time today. Well, Ken, thank you for having me on. It's been an honor and a privilege, buddy. Keep on doing what you're doing. It's awesome. Okay, well, for all the listeners out there, please make sure to share this episode and subscribe to the show. It means more to us than you may know. If you don't get anything else from this, just remember this. Like always, Jesus loves you, and he's going to fight for you no matter what. Talk to you next time.